Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of his father's tribes, every one a leader among them. Send out. Shalak Lekha. Send them out. Let them go get the report and come back and tell us what it is that is getting ready to come, where we're going to go, what is going to happen. And it's interesting to go through and look at this particular uh, portion because I believe of all the portions in the book of Numbers of the story in the wilderness, this is the one that is the focus that probably has more application for us in the future than any of them. Now, there's lots of lessons in there, and last week we talked about murmuring and complaining and rabble-rousing, and we'll see about revolting and all kinds of other business, but there's something that happens here which is fundamental in the history of Israel that is as important in the history of Israel as even the Passover. Now, the Passover is something that God did for us. This is a story of something that the sons of Israel did, specifically these spies. These men who were sent out, they will do something that will have huge and very detrimental effect upon the history of Israel. It was a good idea to send these spies out to see what the land was like so that we would have a sense of what we were going to, what we were going to be facing. God never said it was going to be easy. By the way, I have news for you. God never gave you a promise that walking the life of obedience to him was going to be easy. He did say there was going to be some certain results at the end, though. It would result in eternal life. It would result in complete forgiveness and complete restoration of your life. It would result in many blessings. But he didn't say before that it was going to be easy. And thus is the case of the story of the children of Israel. In the first few verses, it begins to tell us the names of those men who went out. It's an interesting testimonial of these men who went out to spy the land. In verse 17, it says, And when Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there into the Negev, then go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or are they with fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. I want to review what were the charges that were given to these men to go out and to spy. And I want to take note kind of break this down a little bit. There's seven things that Moses asked for. Seven things he said. One, what is the land like? Tell me what that land is like. We know it's a promised land. God has told us that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. What is it like? What is a land that is flowing with milk and honey like? Two, are the people there strong or weak? The people that are on that land, what are they like? Three, how many of them are there? The number of them. Four, 
Is the land good or bad? Five, what about the cities? Are they open or are they closed? Are they like open camps or are they like fortresses? Six, is the land fat or lean? And seven, a charge, bring back some of the land. Bring back the fruit of the land. Can you bring back some of its fruit? We want to taste the land. It's interesting, if you look down through those questions, four of those questions are essentially the same question. Out of those seven questions, there's four questions about the land. Tell me about the land, most importantly. What is that land like? Is the land good or bad? Is it fat or lean? Bring back some of the fruit of the land. I want to taste the land. I'm more interested in the land than I am in the people that are in there. Because it's the land that has been promised to us, it's not the people. So tell me more about the land that is there. Now they go out and they spend some 40 days traveling up through the wilderness and up into the hill country, up into the Judean and Sumerian mountains and along the coast and along the Jordan River and they visited the land. And it says there in verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness all the way on up. And when they had gone up into the Negev, they came to Hebron, and they went to all these different communities, and they saw these cities. And it says, And then they came to the valley of Eskol, and from there cut down a branch from a single cluster of grapes, and they carried on a pole, on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. One cluster of grapes off one branch had to be strung over a pole for two men to carry. So it wasn't like in the grocery store where you go in and get your little plastic bag of grapes. We're talking big cluster of grapes. This, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, this is the symbol of um, the tourist bureau of the land of Israel. It's the figure of these two men carrying this cluster of grapes on a pole. And what, I don't know whether you realize or not, but the tourist bureau is trying to get you to come and spy out the land and to discover there are great things there in the land of Israel. It's also a fitting symbol because it's some of those guys that came back and gave the bad report. And that's the reason why we got so much trouble <laughs> is because of the report that came back from them. And in fact, that's what the rest of this begins to now tell us. It says... Um, verse 25, And when they returned from spying out the land, at the end of the forty days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all of the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation, and they showed them the fruit of the land. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country, and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, 
we should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we shall surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out, it is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim, and we became like grasshoppers in our sight, and so we were in their sight. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plundered. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Interesting. You know, the whole plan all along is to be free men. In Egypt, when their taskmasters oppressed them, they call us, Oh God, send us a deliverer so that we might be freed from this bitter bondage, that we might be free men. So God came forth with many judgments, judging the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh and the sons of Egypt. And the children of Israel went forth as free men, and they were saved from the hand of Pharaoh, and they crossed the Red Sea, and they went to the mountain. They heard the voice of God give his commandments and make his covenant with the people. And now we're ready to go into the promised land. Because they just didn't, you know, you really don't have freedom if you don't have something to go to. You get out of one situation and get yourself right into another situation. You've got to have something to go to. And he had said, I have some place for you to go to, to the promised land. A land flowing with milk and honey. I've reserved it for you. Oh, by the way, it's not a new place. It's the place that your fathers did live, and I promised it to them. I have a promise I'm fulfilling. I gave it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants. You're their descendants. It is your land. We'll go back. We'll get it. I, the Lord, will lead you into the land just as I led you out of Egypt. So they go out to check it out. And here's the report that came back. With regard to question one, what is the land like? Question four, is the land good or bad? Question six, is the land fat or lean? And seven, bring some of its fruit. They all answered and said, good. It is a fat land. It is a good land. Here is its fruit. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Surely God has spoken the truth. With regard to question two, are the people strong or weak? The report was, they're strong. With regard to question five, what about the cities? Are they open or are they closed? The cities are closed. They're fortified. With regard to question three, how many are there? Hmm, there's a whole bunch of them. Amalek is there, the Amorites are there, the Canaanites are there, the Jebusites are there, the Hittites are there. And we even got some giants there. 
some Nephilim. With regard to question four, is the land good or bad? The other spies changed their story and they said, it is bad. They gave a bad report. They said, the land surely must be bad because the land seems to swallow up its inhabitants. If we were to go in there, we would be like grasshoppers. We would be stepped on, eaten, and we would be devoured. We would surely die if we went into this land. They gave a bad report. You know what they did? They lied. God says it's a good land. The first spies coming back said it was a good land. They take issue and they say, no, it's a bad land. It's a bad land. We can't go there. It's no good. So bad was the report. It was a lie. It was a lie. So terrible was this report that most of the children of Israel, they wept. That's a pretty bad report when you make everybody cry. They wept. And they began to complain and cry. You know, what are we going to do? We've come this far. We have no place to go. Which, which way can we go? We can't go forward. We, maybe we could go backwards. Maybe we could make a new leader. Moses let us out. Let's get a new guy. We'll go back to Egypt. Maybe we'll just stay here where we're at. Don't see how we can go forward. And here's the thing that really got them. They said, if we, if we try to go in there, our wives and our children will become plundered to the enemy. And for the fear of their children, they would not believe the Lord. Now, there's an interesting thing about us and our families. For men, probably the greater thing is for the wife. For the husband and the wife, the greater fear is for the children. This is the reason why some say that Adam ate of the fruit. He was more afraid of his wife than he was of the Lord. He loved his wife more than he loved the Lord. Got that out of kilter, got it out of balance. She came and suggested, well, let's do that, and he went along with it. In fact, when the Lord came to him and said, why did you eat of this? Well, it's the woman you gave me. She's the one who did it to me. You know, for the love of his wife, he sinned against the Lord. In this case, it was for the love of their children. Now, I, I'm a parent. I have children. I identify with this. I understand the strong feeling. The fact of the matter is, whether we like to admit it or not, as parents, we literally turn our lives over while our children grow up. As our children begin to grow, our activities are the activities of our children. Whatever our children go into, that's what we do. I got into scouting. That's what my children were doing. I've been in Girl Scouts. That's what my children did. We got into band. That's what my children did. I've had a very full and active life, and it's as a result of my children. We do that. It's natural. It's a normal part of it. We are there literally for the purpose of their life, you know, for them to grow and to mature to be established. We'll surrender our life and our interests for them. The love of children is a very great thing, but if you get the love of children between you and the Lord, you're going to make a big mistake. And the children of Israel made this mistake. You see, 
they have a choice. Uh, can I trust God with my children? We're going to go in the land. There's enemies there and so forth. I don't know if I can trust God with my children. I can trust the God with me. I can trust God with my wife. But I don't know that I can trust God with my children. I don't know that God loves my children as much as I love my children. And then we go along with that lie. One of the dumbest things we could ever believe. I remember the day a couple of years ago when it, it finally hit me. I no longer had that job income I had been accustomed to all my life. And there I was, I was dependent, wholly dependent upon the Lord. I remember praying that day and saying, Lord, you got to understand, I, I've got some apprehensions and concerns here. And, and it's not for the fear of me. But I'm willing to walk before you and trust you to provide for me. But my real concern is for my kids. Now, God, don't, don't, don't let me down on you know, for helping my kids. I want my kids to have a full and good life. You know, and I kind of had, you know, I kind of felt the Lord kind of slap me, knock some sense into me. And instantly it was like the Lord said, you know, I've been taking care of them the whole time, whether you knew it or not. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right, Lord. You, That's right. You've been teamed with me. We've been taking care of them together. Okay, I, I don't know why I'm asking you this then, Lord. You've been doing it all like the same thing here. Somebody needed to go up and slap Israel on the side of the cheek and say, Hey, the Lord's been concerned about your children since you left Egypt. He has plans for future generations of Israel. That means your children, not just you. And we don't have a very good vision. They didn't have one. We don't have one. We don't have a very good vision of that when God looks at your life, he looks at you in the context of that you're the son of other men and that you're the father of some other men. He sees you in the vertical. He sees all of the generations. You don't see yourself in a generational sense. You see yourself as an individual. No, God, I don't know if I can trust you with the most important things in my life. You know, I don't know... If uh, if my fathers prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, would you help me with my sons? I don't know if my father did that or not. I'd like to believe that he did. I think we have to get a vision that our life comes from a certain place and goes to a certain place. And it's that that there are consequences for what we do. And that we bear consequences and burdens upon us because we inherited certain things. The rest of the lesson that's taught in here a little bit later on, let me just give you the punchline real quickly. It just basically says this. If you decide to be unfaithful to the Lord, it's your children who will suffer from it. It's your kids who pay the price. Fathers, if you decide, I don't want to be faithful to the Lord. I don't want to be reasonable in my behavior. I want to be kind of a maverick nut. You know, and I just want to live to myself, and I don't, I don't want to be responsible for anyone else. And so your children will suffer. They will pay the price, you know, for your so-called independence. And they'll pay dearly. You know, we, there are consequences to be born. 
Now here the children of Israel seem like that they're taking responsibility for the children. They're trying to protect them. Well, let's weigh. What is the real protection for our children? To be faithful to the Lord or not trust the Lord? Which is really in the best interests of our children? Set us aside for the moment. I know you're defiant. You can take care of yourself and you'll make sure you're okay. But what about your kids? Which is in their best interest? For you to give them the legacy of faithfulness and walking with the Lord? Or you to give them the legacy of that you'll do it on your own? Well, obviously the answer is, you know, the Lord. That would be the more important thing. And by the way, God is faithful to your children. And even though you may foul that up, you know, the Lord will start over with them. He'll try to find a father in the line who will get with the program so that the next generation and the next set of sons will have the full benefit and blessing of the birthright of our fathers. So even if you go and try to foul it up, he's just going to repair the breach and attempt to repair the breach with the next generation to restore it again. And that's what happens in this case. These people, this generation, balked and refused to trust the Lord. What it really came down to was they lied about what was going on. They wanted to believe a false report over a good report. They wouldn't believe the things, they wouldn't remember and believe the things that had happened in the past. They couldn't call it to mind what had happened in the past. Now they're just dealing with the present. You know, you've ever heard that old excuse about, well, that was yesterday, I'm concerned about today. Well, yesterday has an impact on what you do today. That's why you got here. And if God has proved himself over and over again over here, why don't you go ahead and believe him this time? Now, in the case if you're tossing a coin, you ever heard this? If you flip a coin nine times and it goes up heads, what's the odds of it being tails on the tenth toss? It's a little trick question. It's 50-50. It always was 50-50 because there's nothing that comes over from the previous coin toss to help you. But in the case of the Lord, it's different. It's not a coin toss with the Lord every time. You have promises that have been given and kept and continuing promises that come forward. And, and he has already stated his position. He intends to bless. In fact, he goes in and he says, no good thing will I withhold from them that walk uprightly. If it's a good thing that can be in front of you, I won't even hold it back from you. You know, my disposition, he says, is to bless. So if there's anything good that can come out of that, you're going to get it. And by the way, that, imply, that also applies to a lot of bad things you may go through. If there's anything good in there somewhere, you'll get it. Even in the midst of bad things, you'll still get the good part. That's what the Lord gives it. That's, that's better odds than 50-50. That's a lot better odds than 50-50. So it, it's in your best interest to go with him. Don't take your chances on the other stuff. But here they decide, no, no, they want to take their chances. They want to take their chances. They don't like this report. They, this is a bad report. Our children could be affected. And so they think that they are justified for the reasons of their children to not trust the Lord. There is no acceptable conditions for not trusting the Lord. You can write that in your Bible. That's Judah 15.3. 
There are no acceptable conditions for not trusting the Lord. You must trust the Lord in every condition. I don't care if it doesn't turn out. You still must trust the Lord. Later on, when it doesn't work out the way you thought, later on you'll turn. You'll find out it really was a good thing. If you trust the Lord. If you continue to trust the Lord. Had the sons of Israel trusted the Lord, remembered what the Lord had already done, took him out of his word, believed him, we'd have had different results. Might have been a different world. They did. And as a result, God's judgment came down upon it. And here's what he did. He judged that generation. He judged them. They died in the wilderness. They went in for 40 days. Now they're going to spend the next 40 years dying in the wilderness. He took them at their word. He, he took them at their word. They said it would be better for us to go back to Egypt. That's death. Or stay here in the wilderness. He got both. Egypt and the wilderness. Death in the wilderness. And he said, I'm going to do it according to what you said. That's what you said were the choices I give you. I make the choice. And then guess what he did? He took their children, the one they were so afraid of, to go into the land. He and the children went in and took the land. Didn't need the adults. Just needs some people who will believe. And he supplies all the other resources to go get the job done. That's the one ingredient that we have to bring together, is that we have to believe that what the Lord has said, the Lord will do. And now we have the basic equation of what we call faith. He who comes to God must believe that he is God and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You have to believe first he's God. Then secondly, you have to believe that what he said that he intends to do to you, he will do it. That's the basics of belief for you and me. God wants you to believe what you say. He does not want you to say good things and not believe them. Oh, I believe in the Lord, but deep down in here, not really. That's not what he wants. He wants when you say, I believe in the Lord, you'll do it. I had a man not most recently tell me, he said, those are the most dangerous people in the world, people who say stuff and then believe it. They're crazy. You meet one of them guys, man, they're, they're weird. You know, look out for that guy because he'll probably do it. That's what he wants. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for a people who will believe, who will, what they say they'll do. Because those are kind of people who understand how God works, what he says he will do. And they expect that of each other. They expect it of their God, and their God expects it of his people. But if you've got a disconnect in there, if you've got people who say things but they don't believe it, then you've got a mess. You've got a wilderness experience is what you've got. Which is what we're going to see here that takes place. Now... Interesting story, wonderful lesson, great application. But what in the world does that have to do with us, Monty? Let me tell you an interesting thing about this. You know what the sages of Israel say when this happened? Look there in chapter 14, 
Then all the congregation lifted up their voices, and they cried, and the people wept that night, and all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not have been better for us to return to Egypt? You know what day the sages and the scholars say that this happened? On the ninth of Av. You ever heard about the ninth of Av? The ninth day of the month of Av? You should. Everything that's ever been bad ever to happen to Israel has happened on this day. When Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, he destroyed the sanctuary on the ninth of Av. When Titus of Rome came and besieged Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple, it was on the ninth of Av. The tabernacle of God gets into shambles on the ninth of Av. That's when the worst hits us. To this day, observant Jews fast and pray on the ninth of Av. It's marked on the Jewish calendar every year. Isn't that interesting? God has repeated over and over again this problem. When Israel, this is when it hits us. It was on the ninth of Av that they wept before the Lord. And God said, this generation shall die in the wilderness. Bad news day. Ninth of Av. Comes up in the summer and late July, early August uh, every year. Nobody looks forward to it. It's just a constant reminder of uh, all those times, all the things that have happened to us when we did not obey the Lord. We wouldn't believe the Lord. And we've had, our history has been dotted with it. So we've, throughout history, we've seen the results of this continue on. But the Lord, uh, not too long ago, showed me that there's another group that's going to face this same issue. It's going to be us. So I'm going to give you a little prophetic insight to what this story is about. You see, there is a day, we know that our future is to go into the promised land. The Bible says to us that we will live soon in a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness will dwell. When the Lord returns, that he will rule from Jerusalem and we will go back to the land. We will go to the land where the Lord is at. The Lord has promised to do this with us. We look forward someday to be able to go there, sometime. We know this happens when the Lord comes back, but we've also sent spies out into the land too. And our spies have come back, and they've said there's giants in there. There's things like the anti-Messiah, and there's enemies of us. They will kill us for our faith. They will kill our children. They will kill our wives. There will be tribulation. You have to take a mark of the beast or else you can't eat. You can't buy or sell anything. You can't get food. They will oppress you. They will hunt you down like an animal. And the spies report has come back and you know what they've said? This ain't such a good deal. This is a bad report. Now, some have come back and said, let's not go to the promised land. Let's stay here in the world. 
Let's stay here in Egypt. We'll just continue to be slaves to sin. Let's not do that. Let's stay here in the wilderness. Let's not have the Messiah come back. Now, they don't say that overtly, but they believe it. They just soon not have to deal with any of this. I don't, I don't want to have to deal with this. I don't want to have to go through this trouble and so forth. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to do the same thing the children of Israel did. At the moment that they are put to the test on this, they'll balk. They'll refuse to believe that God could deliver them and lead them through the midst of their enemies and deliver them all the way to the promised land. They won't believe him. They won't trust him. Even though we have much evidence behind us of what God has done going all the way back to how he brought Israel out originally and that he has this pattern all laid out. He's even prophesied and that these are the issues that will come upon those at the end of the ages. These are the same tests. Even though we have the Messiah, we have the Holy Spirit, even though we will have all of these great signs of God judging the gods of the world, just as he judged the gods of Egypt, we will have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as it has never been before, save the day of Pentecost. And a whole bunch of people who supposedly belong to God still won't believe. They're in the same community that we live in right now. They would, if you were to go and ask them right now and say, are you believers? They would say, yes, I'm believers. Are you in the camp of God? Yes, I definitely am in the camp of God. I tell you that very soon we will come to this place called Kadesh Barnea and we will make this decision. And I am very fearful that we won't have learned a thing. You know what happened to the men who gave the bad report here? Not the children of Israel, the men who gave the report. Now, Caleb and Joshua, they were the two men who gave good reports. They, because of their faith, did enter the land. They gave a good report, and they believed God, and they entered the land. Joshua led them into the land. But the other men, men of renown, princes of Israel, listed in the scripture for us by name, they died of a plague on the ninth of all. Ten men fell dead. They didn't get to live out the 40 years and die in the wilderness as time. No, they got hit with a plague. Bing, they're dead. For unbelief. By the way, the first judgment of the great tribulation, brethren, is not upon heathen. The prophecy is very clear. The first judgment is upon the household of God. You know what the judgment measure will be? Those who believe the Lord will get them through the great tribulation. If you don't believe that God can get you through the great tribulation, well... Don't worry, you won't be putting the Lord to the test on that one because you won't have a chance to get through the Great Tribulation. You know, I don't know if you remember this or not, but the last time that God did one of these great world judgments, that's how many people made it. Eight. Now you're telling me that there weren't other men during the course of Noah building the ark that he didn't discuss theology with? 
You're telling me there weren't other men who didn't come up and profess at some point or not that they had heard of the Creator and they believed in the Creator, they just wanted to observe it a little bit differently? You're telling me that some of them didn't come up and try to argue Noah out of that? No, that can't be true. Our God's never done any such thing like that. But they were men that did not find grace in the eyes of the Lord. They probably were religious men. You know, given the fact what we see archaeologically, mostly when we find these civilizations, we find the methods of their worship. Their temples and other kinds of things like that. So they're pretty religious people. Some people of some kind of faith, trying to sort out who God is. Eight people made it through the first judgment. Here... All those men who had been listed earlier in the book of Numbers, from the age of 20 to the age of 50, 654,000 of them, save two, died because of this issue. That's 653,998 of them. That's pretty serious judgment for unbelief. That's going to be the test for us. I don't care what assembly you're going to. I don't care whether you took the Schofield Bible course like me or not. It really won't matter. I don't think it will matter how religious you are, what your age is, or who your father was, or who your kids are. And so I think the only thing that's going to count is will you trust the Lord to get you through it. And some of you are going to balk and say, I can't trust the Lord because I'm afraid for my children. I heard one man when we were talking about this issue very specifically about will we go through the tribulation or not. And he said to me, he said, my God would never make me or my children ever go through the tribulation. And he's right. His God wouldn't. The problem is that ain't the one true God. The one true God says there will be a great tribulation. These are the prophecies. This is what will happen. And we are going to have the same test as the children of Israel did. That's what the Bible says. So if you want to go out and be religious and you want to create another God and make up another story, it'll probably sell well and you'll probably feel better, but it ain't going to work. When these days come, you'll still be faced with this test. This particular test that is here. And it says very emphatically and very carefully. Follow along with me as I read from Numbers chapter 14, beginning at verse 26. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil generation, congregation, who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me, saying to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses shall fall in the wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number, from twenty years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to you, except Caleb and accept Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become a prey, I will bring them in, and they shall know the land which you have rejected. 
I got to start over, I'll start over. You're not going to alter my plans, Israel. And by the way, I got news for you. God is going to do this thing and he's going to come back and he's going to wipe sin out and restore the world. And he is going to live in the millennial kingdom and he is going to rule from Jerusalem for a thousand years. Whether you are there or not, it's going to happen. Whether you believe it or don't believe it, it, it doesn't, you, you're not deciding this. You do not decide the plans of God. God never has once come down and consulted with a man and said, what do you think I ought to do then? After I do that. God doesn't seek the counsel of men with regard to his plans. But we get to be a part of the plan if we'll get on board with what the Lord wants to do and go along with him. We get to be a part. But if we decide, no, we're going to alter the plans of God, I don't like the plans of God, I don't think that's really in my best interest, God. Okay, fine. And it's not, you won't be a part of it. And then he goes on to say, but as for you, your corpses shall fall in the wilderness and your sons shall be shepherds, shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they shall suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. All you have succeeded in doing is making life more difficult and miserable for your children when you decide that you do not want to follow the Lord. When you decide that you want to follow after your lusts and be entrapped to the world in sin, all you have decided is to make it harder for your children. You've not made it easier. I don't care how much money you've stored up and how much inheritance you think you're going to give to them. The inheritance that really counts is the godly inheritance. You just give them some filthy money, they'll go out and spend that. I'm reminded of a very famous story about the fellow who graduated from high school, and the year he graduated, he received this incredible inheritance from his uncle. Some incredible sum of money. And ten-year reunion time came, and all the other classmates that came back to the reunion, they were asking, well, you know, I wonder if uh, that fellow that got all that inheritance, I wonder if he'll be there. And sure enough, he was. He, he showed up. And everybody kind of hung back for a little bit and was kind of watching him to see kind of what he'd do and say. And he just kind of joined in like everybody else. And finally, one guy went over to him and he said, well, uh, he said, uh, gee, what are you doing now? He says, oh, I'm a cab driver in New York. A cab driver. Um, didn't you inherit a whole bunch of money uh, right about the time you got graduated from high school from your uncle or something? He said, "Oh yeah, yeah, I I got a ton of money." He said, "Really?" He said, "Well, what happened to that?" He said, "Oh, that's all gone." So really? He said, "Well, what happened if you don't mind my asking?" He said, well, you know, I did the normal thing. You know, I went out and partied, wine, women, and song, you know. Did that. And the guy says, all of it? He says, oh, no, 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 I squandered the rest. That's what happens when you give them stuff that isn't worth anything. You know, the neat thing about faithfulness to God and the things that are of God, you can't squander them. The only way you can spend those things, it just brings blessing. 
They don't do bad things to you. You cash in one of those coupons, blessing. When you give the heritage of the Lord to your children, it says it changes them. They might take a little detour route along the way, but in the end, they'll come back. Train them up in the Lord. They'll be faithful to the Lord. And they'll pass that on to their children. It says that if you can get this chain started, where you will believe, and you will teach your children to believe, and you will pass on the heritage of the Lord to your children, that it extends to the thousandth generation. The benefit, the blessing of what you cost. Can you imagine going in the millennial kingdom and meeting your thousandth generation down and seeing the benefit of your life, how God used you and all those generations of all those people? And all of them recognizing that certain attributes of their life, certain life-giving attributes, you're the one, you're the one that was the first one to start that. You were the first one to start believing so that God's blessings would start flowing. Interesting. You know, when you see your life in the context of that, it's, there's a different value for your life. But if you just see your life as one generation, none of that stuff makes any sense. And that's really what the children of Israel were doing here. They just saw their life in one generation's perspective. And to tell you the truth, they really didn't love their children or care for their children. It was out of some sort of baser instinct that they were responding and refused to believe. Now, the rabbis say that the reason why they did this, the reason why they lacked this faith, was quite honestly, they didn't know how to be free men. They'd been slaves for so long, they were like institutionalized. All I could think was like a slave. And there's a kind of an interesting argument that gives some basis and an argument that makes sense in my mind about that. Because I run into people all the time who know, who have the knowledge of God, who know the commandments, who know these principles, who understand these principles, and they can't break loose. They still believe that sin has dominion over them. They believe it. Deep down in their heart of hearts, they look at their behavior and they, and if you were to get them to really speak the truth to you, in other words, what, what is really inside them, they, they will confess to you and they say, look, I, his commandments are too hard to keep. I, I just don't see how I can overcome this temptation. It's just like got, got me by the throat. I'm so entangled. And entrapped in this, I'm, I'm a slave to it. I have no power. I'm like, no power over it. And they're still entrapped and still enslaved. And they haven't yet become, they still don't believe that they're free men yet. They don't believe what God has done for them, who has made them free. And as a result, the decisions that they make when they come to serious tests of the Lord, they only do what they are. They're slaves, they act like slaves, and they won't believe. And I think there is a little bit of that here. We've got to break that. We've got to believe the things that we see of the Lord. When the Lord does something in your life, believe it. Remember it. Take note of it. When you ask him, Lord, help me with this, and he does it, remember that he did it. Remember. That's how you break this. 
When I was in the Navy and I became a believer and began to walk with the Lord, I did something absolutely incredible that had never been done. I bought a new car. Nobody in my family had ever bought a new car. And I had 67 cousins and six uncles on one side and half a dozen uncles on the other side. Nobody had ever bought a new car. I was the first guy ever walked down to a showroom and bought a new car. And I dedicated this car to the Lord. And I said, Lord, it's your car. I'll drive it wherever you want this car to go. I'll minister to people. And I'd turn it over. Well, there I was there in the Navy, Miramar Naval Air Station, involved with some navigator Christian guys, and I had pledged to use that car to serve the Lord. And one Sunday, when I was with the navigator guys, a guy came up to me and was introduced to me, and he said, this guy's staying out at the transit barracks at your base. He needs a ride to the airport in the morning. He's a believer. Monty, would it be possible for you to get up early in the morning and take him down to the airport before the start of the work day? And I said, what time do you need to be at the airport? And he said, 6.30. And I said, that's great. It's about 20 minutes back to the base. I can be back to the base in time to start my work day. Sure, I'll give you a ride. This is the Lord's car. I'll give you a ride. I'm the servant of the Lord. And that night as I'm driving into the base, and it's right at 10 o'clock, and I remember this scene very emphatically. As I drove through that base and I saw the gates of the base and I looked at the gas gauge and it was sitting on E. Empty. The gas tanks is empty and I'm broke. I'm a sailor and it's four days till payday. I am really broke. And instantly it's like I began to sort out what is it that I need. I need some gas money to take this guy down to the airport. And oh, by the way, I need some money for my laundry. Payday is Thursday. Lord, I need $10 to do all the things that need to be done. I need $10. I ain't got $10, Lord. Can you help me? I need $10. And the first thought that came to my mind was, well, maybe I could wake up uh, one of my sailor buddy friends there at the barracks, and then it hit me. You know, it's four days till payday. They're just sailors like me. They ain't got no money at this time. Besides, I'd have to wake them up, and they'd just have to say, no, I don't have no money. You know, standing joke in the Navy, if you ask a guy if he's got change for 20 the day before payday, you always tell him you don't need change, you need a bodyguard. Nobody's got no money before payday. And I'm thinking, where am I going to get money? And then I thought to myself, and I said, well, Lord, what, the guy I'm giving a ride down, maybe, maybe he's got some money. Maybe he could give me some. I said, no, 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 Lord. I'm supposed to be serving him. He's not supposed to be serving me. This is your car. I'm your servant. And you asked me if I would take the guy. I'm going to take the guy down there. I don't know what we're going to use for gasoline. I guess we're going to go down there on a miracle and come back. But it's your problem, God. And I said, Lord, we're going to break this thing about needing money. Now, all my life, that's all I've ever known. There's never been enough. That's all I have ever known. Now, if you tell me that I am really free in you and that I can trust in you for provisions and needs, tonight, Lord, we're going to settle this thing once and for all. You're going to somehow provide this 10 bucks, and here's what we're going to do, Lord. We're, you and me are going to make a covenant. I'm going to know from this moment forward I can trust you for it, and I will never be afraid for the lack of money again. And I believe this is what you would have me to be. 
And all this peace came over me. Me and the Lord, we have an understanding. I don't know how he's going to do it. He's going to do it. And I'm not going to be afraid anymore. I am not going to worry about this anymore. And I walked up to the barracks and I went up there and I started taking my clothes off and I pulled my wallet out of my back pocket. And it's one of these folding type wallets. And I threw that up on the dresser and it fell open and a $10 bill fell out of it. And I walked over and I picked up that $10 bill real quick. And there wasn't even a crease mark in that $10 bill. I have no idea how that $10 bill got in my pocket. I took that thing and folded it over and scratched off, see if I could get some green ink off it. I want to know if God was counterfeiting money or not. And it came off the green. It looked real. Spent real, too. I have never feared for money since. That happened when I was 20 years old. Broke the fear that I had always known all of my life. Remember what the Lord does, how he answers your prayer, what he does with you, proving that he's interested in you. He knows what the problem is. He's, he's working the problem. Have a little confidence in him. This rest of this portion uh, goes on and tells an interesting side story about the people tried to correct this mistake. This was so devastating. When they saw those ten spies die, for some reason they got it in their head, said, well, what the deal is, is we just need to go up there and take the land finally. So they hustled up and Moses said, don't do this. You don't understand. We're successful only when the Lord goes with us. It's not because you decide to go. We weren't unsuccessful. It's the Lord who's the determinant. So they trooped up to the hills and they didn't take two things. They neither took Moses nor the Ark of the Covenant. And they got their tails kicked. Something fierce. And only two of those tribes up there ran them back. And basically what that means is there's a very simple formula here. No Ark, no Moses, no success in battle. Same, same thing applies to you in your battles. No Ark of the Covenant in here. No commandments, no teaching, no obeying the Lord, no success. It's the exact opposite. Joshua learned this lesson very well. It says, this book of the law, you shall meditate in it day and night so that you might to observe to do all that is written therein. For then thou shalt have good success and then thou way shall be prosperous. Prosperity and success comes from getting in line with God's plan, not being contrary to it. That's where success comes from. And we're all after that. We're all after prosperity. We're all after success. We're all after the blessing. So the formula is very clear for us. We just need to implement what we have been told. Now, there's another interesting principle, and I want to conclude uh, uh, very quickly with the lesson, but tell you of a couple of interesting things that it speaks here. Two items that I want to mention. In Numbers chapter 15, I want to show you very specifically God's plan with regard to the Torah and with regard to you, the Gentiles. In verse 13, it says, All who are native shall do these things in this manner. In presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, and if an alien sojourns with you, that's a Gentile, 
if a Gentile comes in and joins with you, Israel, or one who may be among you throughout your generations. In other words, after this generation, future generations, if the Gentiles ever come into the midst of where the sons of Israel are, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. Just as you do it, so he will do it. After the same manner, after the same order, the same way. If he wants to come and worship the Lord, he's welcome to do it, but he's going to do it the same way. And this is the meaning in the teaching of the law where it says, for us not to offer meat sacrificed idols. Now, in history, we've never seen anybody go out and set up an idol and then build an altar and then, you know, that, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is if you Gentiles decide that you want to go worship the one true God, you must do it in accordance with the way the one true God said that you will worship him. He says that a Jew or a Gentile, if you come up and try to worship me in a different manner than the way that I have specified, I don't care what your intentions were, it was meat sacrificed to some idol. It's a form of idolatry because he's not going to accept it as worship to him. Well, the principle also works the other way. If you want to come and you want to join in, then you're going to do it the same way that we have been instructed to do it. And you're welcome to come in and do it that way. And that what you'll find is laced throughout the Torah is the provision for you to come and worship the same God, get the same blessings, get the same benefits, but, but you've got to do it the same way. Now, that doesn't mean you keep every commandment. That just says when you go to worship the Lord, you have to do it the same way. You have to respect him the same way, call him by the same name. You have to obey the same commandments to love him that I have to command. You have to obey the same commandments of how to love your brethren that I have to. If you're going to follow this God, then you'll follow it according to his rules. If you go to his house to eat supper with him, you'll follow his rules just like I would. And that's what this is saying. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourn you, sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. If you want to love the Lord... You will keep his commandments just like I keep the commandments. What commandment am I talking about? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. You cannot leave off the might part. You cannot leave off all your strength part. And you cannot leave off the heart part. If you want to come worship the Lord, you will do it the same way. And you will be found acceptable. The same way. Those rules were established so that it would be acceptable to the Lord. Anyone who comes up. The Torah teaches us that if you, the Gentile, even if you obey the Lord by accident, you still get the full benefit for obeying. Whether you understood it or not, you still get the full benefit. If you know it and you do it, you still get the full benefit. It's one. It is one law. Why is that? Why would I emphasize that right now? Because we have a fundamental key issue that is pressing right now, and it's the, it's the deal over Sabbath. 
There's one Sabbath. Not everybody's. Not every day is Sabbath. There's one Sabbath. There's God who made rules about one Sabbath. If you want to keep the Sabbath, then you will keep the Sabbath that he specified, not the Sabbath the Jews specified, not the Sabbath that the Baptist specified, the Sabbath that God, the one true God, creator of heaven and earth, the one he specified. One law, one ordinance. If it's the subject of keeping Sabbath, there's one way. One way. I don't care if you've got a fanciful theology and you think you've got some improvements on what God's doing. You want to say every day is a Sabbath. Every day is holy to God. No, it's not. God specified there's one day that he's made holy. There's one day that he takes off from work. Uh, by the way, the reason why he takes off from work is so he has time to come visit you at your house. Of course, you have to invite him because he doesn't go where he's not invited. And as I told the people down in, uh, on the recent trip, you need to start inviting the Lord to your house on Sabbath. And you need to start doing this pretty quick. Because the Lord is planning on coming back, and the people that know him will get invited to his house. And you don't want to try to go to his house, and you've never invited him to your house first. Because that's a marker of not knowing the Lord. He says the people that will go into the millennial kingdom are the people that know him. And he will, this business of knowing God is exactly the way you talk about knowing someone. We meet lots of people in our life. We work with lots of people. We grow up with lots of people. If, you, if somebody comes up to you and says, hey, uh, do, do you guys know Gary? Do you guys know him? You know, he, he comes to the assembly. He's been around here a couple of times. You know, if somebody walks up to me and says, well, do, Monty, do you know Gary? You know what my answer is going to be? Yeah, I know him. He's been to my house before, and I've been to his house before. Had we never been to each other's houses, I would say, well, no, not really. He goes to the same assembly. I've met him. I know a few things about him. I've shaken his hand. I know what he does. But no, I can't really say that I know it. But if the guy comes to your house... That's what you'll always give as the attribute. You say, oh, yeah, I know him. Well, the same deal's on the Lord. you got to invite the Lord to your house or else you don't know him. And that's what Sabbath is all about. One commandment about Sabbath. I don't care how much theology you want to create. There's only one way to get through with the Lord, and that's to believe in him and know him. And him to know you. And see you obeying him. That's the way we get through this. The last thing that I want to mention in this, this portion is right at the end of Numbers chapter 15. There's a small teaching and, a, and a, what we call a mitzvot, a commandment. It begins at verse 37. It says, Then the Lord also spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on a tassel of each corner a cord of blue. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember at all the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you have played the harlot. In order that you, rem you may remember to do all my commandments and to be holy, 
to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. For those of you, you've seen this before, it's a symbol. It's a tallit, a four-cornered covering garment made of white wool, and in it, it has several parts. First of all, the garment belongs to the Messiah. It's not my personal tally. I bought it, but it's a gift from the Messiah for me. It's the covering of the Messiah. It symbolizes the Messiah has covered me. It's white because he's made all my sins, which were scarlet, and he's turned them to white. And that's his covering. It has stripes in it, and the scripture says there's to be blue in it. You know what we teach concerning these stripes? We say that when you put this on, God puts this stripe out there in front of you, and he, and, and he says, on this side of the line shall be holy. On that side of the line shall be the world. You'll be separate from the world. Well, there's a whole bunch of blue lines there. Why is that? Because I keep crossing the line, and he has to keep putting the line out in front of me. It's a demonstration of his mercy. He just continues to extend the line out and to make me holy. No matter whether I cross the line or not, he continues to forgive me, and he continues repeatedly to show his mercy toward me. It has silver thread in it. Sometimes I have gold to indicate it's a royal garment. It belongs to the king. I'm not a king. He's a king. It's his garment. And then as the commandment says there, you shall put this tassel on its corners. This is to help you to believe. He says, when you see this tassel, he said, you will remember to obey all of the commandments of the Lord and not follow after your eyes, which goes a whoring after idols. That you'll believe the Lord and follow his commandments. There's a cord of blue. There's eight strands here, and one of those strands has done all the loops and knots. And this blue line is called the servant cord. It's called the shamash. It's the one that does all the work of binding it together. They don't share the binding. There's certain who receive the benefit of it. It's a reminder specifically of the 613 commandments of the Torah because there are eight strands and there are five knots. That's 13. And the numerology for the name Sitzit, which is what this is, is 600. 600 for the name, five knots plus eight pieces of string. 613. So that when we see it, we say, this last knot is not tight. It's not a locking knot. When you put the tallit on, one of the duties of you, when you wear the tallit, is you have to cinch the knot up. You have to tighten it up. You have to consciously, hey, i got I to tighten it up. To remember, each time, it's going to take some effort to obey the Lord. You're going to have to renew your efforts each time. You know, It's not an automatic thing. Once you start doing it, it just doesn't flow. You've got to do it every day. When you put it on the uh, the prayer, the traditional prayer that is said here is you say, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, who has sanctified us by your commandments and commanded us to wear the tassels in obedience to this instruction. 
You see, if you obey the Lord, you don't even have to do this. That God will do this for you. If you will obey the Lord in the manner in which that you obey, he will separate you from the world. He pulls you out of the world. He pulls you over. And if you want to see how to get separated from the world, just go out and start obeying God. And the whole world will rise up in contempt against you and separate you from them so fast they'll make your head sweat. Yeah, but I don't have the strength, Lord. I don't have the heart to do this. Oh, you need a heart? I'll give you the desire to do this. Well, I don't know how to keep it exactly right. By the way, it's okay. You see, if you just do it with your heart, it is okay. And I, the Lord, will give you the grace which is sufficient for you for all the rest. Yeah, but what if I unintentionally do something? My grace covers that. And suddenly, they're free men. They're free to obey. They're free to live their life. It's the other men who won't believe that are still slaves. You can always hear them. It's whenever they complain. So, oh, if you keep that commandment about Sabbath, <laughs> you're putting yourself under bondage. No, they would be under bondage because they got so many commandments they're trying to keep right now. They're just wrapped up tight. You come in there suggesting them keep one more commandment up. <laughs> I haven't got room for any more commandments. I got so many commandments I'm trying to keep. And they're the one going around complaining they're free. They do it with a real muffled sound. I'm free. So it doesn't quite sound right. And they're miserable. They're not happy people. They're subject to sin. And when you really talk to them and you get down and you really get into their heart, and you know what they say? I don't really think we can keep these commandments because I don't think it's possible to be holy. I don't think it's possible to obey the Lord. And from their standpoint, with the mindset of a slave, they're right. Until they start believing the Lord, they'll never be free. Never. And they're the men who want to go back to Egypt. And they want to die in the wilderness. We do not want to be of the generation that dies in the wilderness. We want to be like Joshua and Caleb. We want to say that the good the land is a good land. It's full of milk and honey. It's a good place. And yes, there are enemies in there. Yes, there's troubles in there. But the Lord is with us and will strengthen us. And he will lead us in there. And he will break the bonds of every yoke. You've got to start remembering when God delivers you so that you can build up your confidence and your strength to believe in him more for bigger and better things. That's what the pursuit and the study of the Torah is about. To try to tempt you to obey the Lord and learn that you can be free. And that's what this is a story about, some slaves who became free men. And we want to apply the lessons, and we want to be free men. We can only do it by believing the Lord. He's the one that leads us to freedom. Amen? Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for your many blessings. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for the Word of God, for all of its instruction, all of its stories, all of its history, all of its inspiration. But, Lord, we especially thank you for you. We thank you, Lord, that you hang in there and you remember that we're only dust 
you remember that we have the mindset of slaves and that we need to learn how to be free men. And Lord, I would pray that you would look down with loving compassion, with great mercy, that you would cover us with the talit, that you would show the tassels before us, that we would focus in on you and not be concerned about the concerns that are around us in the world, but that we trust and believe in you, believing that you intend to do good to us and that we could observe and watch how you do that. But that, Lord, not that we would be entertained each day, but that we would grow in the experience of those things and remember and believe you. And, Lord, we do know that there's a day coming when a great test will come upon mankind A great test will come upon us, and the core issue will be, will we believe you? Lord, give us now even the hearts to want to go into the promised land, not to shrink back in our faith to go back to Egypt or to die in the wilderness, but the Lord, that we might have our confidence in you. And I ask, Lord, that you might use these Torah teachings and portions to strengthen all who hear them and all who open up the book to learn. Lord, make and manifest yourself to them. Not just the words that seem to make sense, but Lord, with your spirit, that you might stir them in their hearts and assure them and confirm the truth of these things to them in their own personal experience. And I ask this all in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405 447 4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968 Norman, Oklahoma 73070 Our web address is www.lionlam.net Thank you.